We also know that uh, the human heart longs for peace and unity and harmony. Right? I mean, isn't that what most people want? I mean, I know there's some crazy people out there that do crazy things and, you know, hurt people and those kind of things. But most people, I mean, they, they, you want to get along with people. I mean, we, we don't want the world to be crazy. Uh, we don't want crazy things to be happening. We want people to be hurt. But, I mean, you know, think about it. In, in the 105 years or so since that happened, I mean, how many hundreds of millions of people have been killed in wars or genocides or ethnic cleansings or uh, by dictators and tyrants or by abortion and, and, and just in whatever way? I mean, we live in a world that's full of murder and violence. We live in a world that's divided. I mean, just think about how divided our nation is right now. I mean, there's racial divisions. Families are divided. There's gender division. There's division uh, over religion. Uh, there's political, ideological kinds of divisions. I mean, you know, think about it. I mean, think about how contentious the 2016 election cycle was. And usually that happens and then it dies down. Hasn't stopped this time. It's about to get worse. Uh, we, we live in, in a divided country. But we want peace. We want unity. And, and I guess my question would be, is there any hope for peace and unity? Is there any end to this division? And of course, you know, we know that it's not ultimately or, or completely uh, going to happen until Jesus comes back. But I believe it can be better than what it is. And, and I believe that the church is called to make a difference in that way, and really that the church is called to model and show the world what, what uh, real unity and love and service and care is supposed to look like. And what we're going to see in the book of Ephesians uh, today is that division and separation is really a spiritual problem, and so it has to have a spiritual solution. It's something that only Jesus can, can solve because sin separates, sin divides, it separates us from God, it separates us from each other, and, and the hope for reconciliation is in the cross of Christ. But the good news is that the cross of Jesus Christ not only reconciles us to God, but it unites us with one another in the church. Now, you say, well, where does all this, I mean, if we want... Um, peace and unity and harmony, where does all this division and all this separation comes from? Well, the root of it is sin. God did not create the world this way. We turned the world into what it is. I mean, if you think back, I mean, you know, if the Bible's true, this is how it lays out the story. And of course, we believe it is, but you know, you go to Genesis 1, God made everything and it was very good. And then he makes the, the first two people, our, our original parents, Adam and Eve. And, and he puts them in, in the Garden of Eden. He puts them in a place. It's a perfect paradise. And they're in harmony with, with him. He's coming down and personally fellowshipping with them. They're in harmony with one another. I, I mean, think about it. There's no sin. Everything's perfect. There's all the animals. It's paradise. And the Bible says they're naked and unashamed. God says, go and be fruitful and multiply. I mean, that's like the original command. And so, uh, I mean, that, that's, what, that's where they were. But then, how do we get from there to here? Well, you go to Genesis 3. Because the Bible, Christian worldview, 
There's creation, but then there's the fall. So in Genesis chapter 3, uh, Satan, who was uh, the worship leader in heaven, but he rebels against God. He's seeked out of heaven, and he comes to earth to, to tempt them, disguised as a serpent. And we'll skip through the first few verses for time's sake. But in, in, in verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So she took the bait. It, it, it looked good. It, it, it looked attractive. But, you know, Satan's a liar. Jesus said he's the father of lies. Behind every sin we commit, there's a lie that we believe. And, and they believed the lie that God, God was holding out on them, that he had something more that he wasn't uh, giving them. I mean, you know, Satan's like, you know, you need to, you, you can be like your own God, and you can know good and, and, and evil, but the reality is God never wanted us to know evil. He only wanted us to know good. And so look at what happens in verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And can I submit to you, outside of Jesus' experience on the cross, that I believe that was the most awful moment in human history. Can you imagine that realization of what they had just done? I mean, think about the thing that you've done where you felt the most guilty and multiply it about a hundred times. And that's probably what was happening in that moment that their eyes were opened. The eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked. I mean, they didn't know any different before. They just thought, hey, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is normal. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. It's covering. See, when sin came into the world, shame came into the world. Guilt came into the world. God didn't create us for that. So they try to cover themselves up. It's the first attempt at man-made religion outside of the gospel. But then notice verse 8. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which I'm assuming that's what God had done every day, come down to fellowship with them. But this time, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. You see, sin separated them from God. They were now afraid of God. They were at enmity with God. And that's how we're born, because we inherit a sin nature from them. But then, verse 9, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. You know, there's certain verses, if you want the Bible in just like a microcosm, and like a, a little uh, nutshell, uh, you want the Bible in a verse, this is one of them. It says, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now think about this. God had, had created everything perfectly. He'd given them this paradise, and they just rebelled against them. God could have destroyed them, but instead, he came looking for them. That's who our God is. The next time you doubt the love of God, the next time you think you've sinned so badly that God can never love you or accept you, think about this verse. Think about what Adam and Eve had just done, and God is looking for them. And in a sense, that's the story of the Bible. Jesus came to seek and to save those that are lost through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Right now, Jesus is still seeking and saving those that are lost. If you're lost and far away from God in rebellion against him, God is seeking you right now to bring you back into fellowship with himself. But, the, but their sin separated them from God. Then notice verse 10. 
Adam said, well, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. How much time have we spent in our lives hiding from God? And so God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And God was not absent of information. He was giving him an opportunity to confess his sin. But instead of uh, confessing his sin, he started playing the blame game. Right? And who's he going to blame it on, ladies? I mean, does this sound familiar? Uh, the man said, notice he just didn't even blame it on his wife. He blamed it on God, too. Because he said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. So Adam's like, man, I didn't even have like a hundred women to choose from, and I got to pick this woman. You arranged this marriage, Lord, and look what this woman that you gave me is now gone and done. And, of course, God could have been like, well, where were you? Well, why weren't you leading her, protecting her like you were supposed to be? But anyway, says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree. And I ate. And then, you know, it goes on as even God pronounces the curses and those kind of things. But, you know, where did the battle of the sexes start? It started right here. Where did human separation begin? It began right here. Why are we divided between us and God? Why are we divided with one another? Because of sin. That's the root of it. So then the question becomes, well, what's the solution? Well, Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, and, and, and let's start uh, with, with the separation part. So this, this is the first statement I want to give you, the first truth I want to show you, is that we are separated from God and each other by our sin. Look, look at what the Bible says here. Uh, Ephesians 2, 11 uh, through 13, he says, Therefore remember that you... Once Gentiles in the flesh. And so Paul is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. That was primarily a Gentile city. So it would have uh, presumably been a primarily Gentile uh, congregation. And, and he's saying, you know, you, you're ethnically, uh, by, by your heritage, by your relatives, you're Gentiles. And he says you're called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. And so he's talking about this divide, this uh, anger, this hatred between Jews and Gentiles, which continues uh, until today. Now, today in our world, it's probably more Gentiles toward Jews. Back then, it was probably more Jews toward Gentiles. The Jews were called by the grace of God to be God's special chosen people, but they were called to be a missionary people, to be a light to the world. But instead, they looked down on, they judged, they despised the Gentiles. And one of their terms of derision for them was they're the uncircumcised. And of course, you know, the circumcision was the, the mark of the covenant, the outward sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. But it didn't make them right with God in and of itself, but they had turned it into that. But there's this division that's here between Jews and, 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 and Gentiles. And understand, God created or, or made this separation between Jews and Gentiles but they handled it in the wrong way. And, and, and there's, there's, a, there's a point to this. And, and the point is this. Racial divisions or just the idea of race today is a man-made construct. It's not from God. There's one race, the human race. We have the same original parents Genetically, DNA-wise, there's very little difference between 
any human being of any supposed race. We're all made in the image of God. God loves everyone. God is no respecter uh, of persons. And so race is a human construct. But this, I mean, ethnicity is a real thing. I mean, there's different, you know, ethnicities, Jews and Gentiles. That's something, though, that God created. He made the Jews different to show himself to the world. That was the idea. But they took it and they used it in the wrong way. And so I want you to see here that there's social separation between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Just a couple of examples. Kent Hughes writes that a study of the history of the ancient world tells us that none of today's social distinctions, none of our racial barriers, our narrow nationalisms, our iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in in biblical times. The Jews believed that the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. A common motto was, the best of the serpents crush the best of the Gentiles kill. And you say, well, why is Paul talking about this, though? And here's why I think part of the application is to us, is if God could bring Jews and Gentiles together through the cross in the, in, in the church, through the cross today in the church, he can solve any other division as well. Warren Wearsby writes this. He says there was a wall in the Jewish temple separating the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple areas. Archaeologists have discovered the inscription from Herod's temple, and it reads like this. And and people besides Wearsby write about this because of the archaeological find, but it goes like this. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And so it's kind of like this, you know, we put up no trespassing signs or maybe signs that say trespassers will be prosecuted. What they were basically saying is trespassers will be killed. If you're a Gentile and you come past this barrier, we're going to kill you. In fact, when you read the New Testament, Acts 21, the Jews tried to kill Paul because they mistakenly thought he had brought a Gentile past this barrier in the temple. They were serious about this. Now, I want you to look at this diagram, and this will help us, and we'll come back to this. But this is a diagram uh, of, uh, of Herod's temple. And so on the outside, there was the court of the, the Gentiles, the outer part of the temple. And so there's this wall, and a Gentile cannot come past that on threat of death. Now, once you get past that, though, there's a court of women. So the Jewish women could go there, but then they couldn't go past that. And then once you get past that, there's a, another a division, another wall, another separation where the Jewish men could go. But then there's another wall, another place. They can't go past that. Only the priest can go into that area. And then there's one more area, the inner court, the Holy of Holies, that only the high priest could go into once a year. And so part of the implication of this text as we read through it is that all of these divisions, all of these barriers, these barricades, all of these walls are broken down at the cross of Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, you have access to God. Uh, whether We're all priests in a sense. You, you don't have to be a priest to come into the presence of God. We all in Christ have access to God. Okay, We'll come back to that later. So 
There's a social separation, though, between Jews and Gentiles. But second, there is a spiritual separation between us and God. Look at verse 12. And, you know, and don't misunderstand this. Being a Jew does not automatically give you a relationship with God. It just gives you a head start. It's what the Bible teaches. It's like if we were running a 40-yard dash and you were a Jew, you got about a 15-yard head start is kind of the idea because they had the law and the covenants and the promises and all these things that the Gentiles didn't have. In fact, Paul says here of the Gentiles, and this describes us, kind of parallels with verses 1 through 3. We're just talking about how we're dead in Christ and all these kind of are dead in our sins, dead without Christ. He says that, that at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off. And far off is the key phrase in this section. He's saying that we were far off, we were far away from God. It's like we're out in the outer court instead of the Holy of Holies. But look at these five characteristics that he gives uh, of people apart from God. He describes uh, them as Christless, as not a part of God's people, as without a covenant, as hopeless, and as without God in the world. And maybe this is a good illustration of that. Um, one of the ancient rabbinical writers wrote this. A certain Gentile woman came to Rabbi Eliezer, confessed that she was sinful, and told him that she wanted to become righteous. She wanted to be accepted into the Jewish faith because she had heard that the Jews were near to God. The rabbi is said to have responded, No, you cannot come near and then shut the door in her face. And that illustrates both the separation between Jews and Gentiles, and it illustrates uh, their spiritual status as far away from God, not near to God. So, we're separated from God and each other by our sin. But second, and this is the good news, we're reconciled to God and each other through the cross. We're reconciled to God and each other through the cross. Let's pick up reading in verse 13. He says, but, and, and, and just like, you know, in, in verse, uh, I think it's verse 4, you know, we've seen who we were, but he says, but God. Now it's but now in Christ Jesus, another divine intervention. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, and then here's the key phrase in this section, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is temple language. We're reconciled. The separation's ended. We're brought back to God. Jacob, if you would go back to that temple diagram, think about it. Before the cross, if you were a Gentile, male or female, look at where you were. If you were a Jewish woman, look at where you were. If you were a Jewish man, look at where you were. Even a, even a priest couldn't go all the way in. And think about it. Only the high priest could go in once a year after offering a sacrifice and being purified. But now in Christ Jesus, those who were far off have been brought near. What that means is in Christ Jesus, each of us can come into the very presence of God, into the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus 
24-7. Think about that. You have more access to God in Christ than the high priest did under the old covenant. How often, though, I mean, I've been convicted about uh, that this week. On, so how often do we just take that for granted? I mean, how often do we not think about the privilege we have to pray, to worship, for God to minister to us, for us to be able to minister? And th- this is why we're all priests, male and female, Jew and Gentile. We have direct access to God through Jesus Christ, and we're commissioned by him to then go and minister to others in his name. Let's pick back up in verse 14. It says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one, Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. I mean, think about the temple. Remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? The veil of the temple was torn in two, and it symbolized this, that the way had been made open into the presence of God. Having abolished in his flesh, through his death, the enmity, the enmity between God and man, the enmity between Jew and Gentile, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God, Jew and Gentile, in one body, in the church, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. For through him, through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. We're separated by sin. We're reconciled through the cross to God and to each other. Now, reconciliation is a beautiful word. It's a big word, but it's pretty simple. It's to take two things that were together and then were broken apart and bring them back together again. And we have some uh, married couples of true life. They were married to each other. They divorced each other. And then they got remarried to each other. That's reconciliation. But you know, usually when there's reconciliation, I mean, there, there's been times I've sat down with individuals or families that were at odds and kind of helped them come back together. It's a lot of what Lori does in counseling. Often in reconciliation, there's a mediator. There's a go-between. And you know what? With our reconciliation, there's a mediator. There's a go-between. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's, uh, there's one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and Jesus is our go-between. He's the one who is God and touches the hand of the Father. And he's a man and he touches our hand and he brings them back together again through the cross. He reconciles us. He brings us back into relationship with the Father. And then he brings us into relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter what the outward divisions are, this is who we are in Christ. We're children of the Father, and we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and this is our identity. And we're to live based on that identity, not outward things like color of skin and gender and socioeconomic status and all these other things. Listen, we're not, we're not to try to be unified as the church. Uh, according to Ephesians chapter 4, which is really based on what he's saying in Ephesians 2 and 3, we're to endeavor to keep 
the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because we're reconciled to God and each other through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. He says, now you got to go and live like it. And the reality is, when we divide over external things, when we fight, when we mistreat each other, instead of loving each other and serving each other and blessing each other, uh, we're, we're not just like uh, dishonoring each other. We're not just dishonoring God. We're basically spitting on the blood of Jesus Christ that purchased this reconciliation and brought about this unity through the cross. I mean, together is an ongoing theme in Ephesians chapter 2. This is who we are. Listen, if you're in Christ, you're in the church, and we belong to each other, and we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're commanded to love one another and to treat each other like family. That's the reality. I mean, if we could skip ahead to verses 19 through 22 for a minute, and we'll come back to verses 14 through 18. And I'm just going to touch on this because we're actually going to spend... uh, Uh, four weeks unpacking these four verses to see who we're called to be uh, as the church. So in in Ephesians 2.19, look at what he goes on to say here. He says, now therefore, this is the application. This is what comes out of it. He says, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you're also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. As the church, through this reconciliation that's brought about by the cross, he says we've been made one new man, one new person, and uh, we're, we're brought together We're united, and we are citizens of the same kingdom, members of the same family, building blocks of the same temple, and ultimately, we are corporately the dwelling place of God. That's what it means to be the church. Church isn't optional for the Christian life. We are the church. You don't just come to church. You are fellow citizens in God's kingdom, members of God's family, building blocks of God's temple, the dwelling place of God's spirit. And I think one of the reasons that the church is so weak in America right now is because our theology of the church is so screwed up and we say, yeah, give me Jesus, but yeah, the church is optional. You can't have one without the other. You see the connection that he's making here? The cross does this. This is who we are. We belong to each other and we need to live like it. Now, Let's go back for a minute, and like I said, that's just a preview of me ranting about that for four weeks, because I want us to see what it means to be a part of God's kingdom and a part of his family and building blocks in his temple, and that, you know, ultimately we want the presence of God. The presence of God is, I mean, we're individually temples of the Holy Spirit, but we're collectively the temple of the Holy Spirit is what he's saying. But, but just to finish up, let's go back for a minute, verses 14 through 18. We're reconciled to God and each other through the cross. So what what does it mean to be reconciled? What does this bring about? Let me show you four things as we finish. Number one, we're in union with Jesus. He he says in in verse um, 13, but now in Christ Jesus. 
We've talked about this. One of the key phrases in Ephesians, this is who we are. We're in Christ. He's in us. We're in this union with him. His life is in us. He's living through us. That's what it means to be a Christian. But out of union with Christ, in, out of this position, out of this relationship, I want you to see that he's reversed our previous spiritual condition. Think about it. He says in verse 12, we were Christless. But now he says, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. He said before that we weren't a part of God's people. But now verse 19 again, we're, we're no longer strangers, but we're fellow citizens. We're members of the household of God. We've been grafted in to the people of God. Before, we were without a covenant, but now Ephesians 3.6 tells us that we're partakers of the promise through the gospel. We have a new covenant, a better covenant, an eternal covenant. Jesus Christ being the head of that covenant. And now, we don't need a temple anymore because Jesus is our temple. We don't offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus is our once-for-all sacrifice. We don't need a priest anymore because Jesus is our high priest who brings us into the very presence of God. Before, it says we were without hope. We were hopeless. But now 1 Peter 1, uh, 3 and 4 tells us that uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the fact that Christ rose from the dead. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection so our future is ultimately secure and that we don't have to fear death, but we can know that we've been uh, given an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that's not fade away, reserved in heaven for you because of the resurrection of Jesus. Before, we were without God, but now 1 John 3, 1 tells us, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. That's who we are now. So we're in union with Jesus. Number two, we have peace with God and his people. Four times here he uses the word peace. Jesus says he himself is our peace. He gives us peace with God. He gives us the peace of God. He gives us peace with one another. Uh, the Bible teaches us when we're in right relationship with God vertically, then we're going to be in right relationship with others horizontally. And both of those things are the peace that he purchased on the cross. To be right with God, to be right with each other, to live in fellowship with God, to live in fellowship with each other. L look at what 1 John 1, uh, 1 through 3 uh, says. That which was from the beginning, talking about Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. <clears throat> the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now notice verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, through the cross, we have fellowship with God we have fellowship with each other. We're at peace. Three, we have access to God. And, and, and we've already talked about this. But, you know, when he, when he talks about access here, when he, when he uses that word, the, the word picture in the Greek is that 
In, in, in ancient times, a king, a ruler, would have someone whose job it was to, if people wanted to see the king, or if the king called for someone, that person would usher the, the, whoever it was, into the king's presence. You couldn't just come in uninvited, unannounced to see the king. I mean, if you remember in the Old Testament, even Esther, the wife of the king, uh, when she approached him uninvited, even as the queen was putting her life on the line, you just couldn't come into the king's presence any old time uninvited. And this person kind of ushered you in, brought you in when the king wanted you to be there, gave you entree, gave you access. And so what he's saying here is that we all the time have access to the king 24-7 through Jesus Christ and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He gives us access to God. Once again, we're not like the, old, uh, uh, the, the high priest in the Old Testament who could come in once a year. We can come into the presence of God anytime because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then last, he, he says here that we are one new people as, as, as Christians. Jacob, if you would put verse 15 back up there uh, again. Notice what he says. <clears throat> Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, and the two is Jews and Gentiles. The one new man, man's not really the best uh, translation probably. It's not the word, Greek word for man. It's the Greek word anthropos. That's the generic word for human beings. Uh, one new people, one new hu humanity from the two. And, and, and here's what he's saying. And then, and when, then in verse 16 he says, that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. He's saying when we get saved... We have a new identity in Christ. We have a new ultimate allegiance. That, that whatever our ethnicity is, that whoever we are outwardly, that spiritually none of that matters, none of, none of that counts, that who we are is ch a child of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're a new people. He's saying there's Jews, there's Gentiles, and now there's Christians. Now there's the church. And this is my people, God says. And that's the only three classifications of people that you'll really find in the Bible. I mean, you'll find, you know, nations, ethnic things, that kind of thing. But you got Jews, Gentiles, Christians in the church. And, and, and the thing about it, the word new there, it, it's a Greek word. There's a couple different words that are translated new. And this one means something that's new and it's of a completely different order or nature. So... Example might be this. Let's say that you went to a, a, a car assembly factory, an automobile manufacturing location. And, and, and let's say that Lexus decides to roll out a new model one year. But it's still a Lexus. It's different, but it's still basically the same thing. That's not the kind of new this is talking about. The kind of new this is talking about is the first hybrid car that ever rolled off a production line. Something that was completely different. A completely new model. Something that was different from anything before. That's what he's saying about Christians and the church and who we are. And so, once again, the point of all this Sin separates. 
Sin divides. As long as there's sin in the world, there's always going to be divisions in the world. And he's saying, because it's a spiritual problem, it's a heart problem, the solution has to be spiritual. It has to be a heart solution. And he's saying the solution is the cross of Christ. Jesus came and he died for our sins and he died in our place to make us right with God, to reconcile us to God, to end that division between us and God. But at the same time, he's saying that sin separates us with each other horizontally. And and, and the way that that's ended, the way that that's healed, is through the cross. Because in the cross, we're brought together in one body, as one new person, as children of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the church. And he's saying, that's how we live. You see, that's where there's racial reconciliation and all these other divisions. That's when there's healing. It's when we're in Christ and we live like we're in Christ and we live like we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we don't live based on these outward things, but we love each other and support and pray for and encourage each other. And then that becomes a model to the world. That's who the church is called to be. That's what we're called to do. And that's how we're going to penetrate the darkness with the gospel if it starts by us living like we're one in Christ. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. Not by our buildings, not by our worship services, not by our denominations, not anything like that. But the fact is that you have love for one another. We don't have to try to get united. We are united. We have to believe that and live like it. So here's my encouragement. <clears throat> First of all, if, if you know today that your heart condition is that you're far off from God, you're separated from God, <clears throat> you're not in fellowship with the Lord, you don't have a relationship with Him, The solution is the cross. It's for you to lay down your sin, to lay down your life and come to Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, take control of me. I repent of my sins. I confess you as my Lord. I give you my life. And that's when you're reconciled to God. Some of you, maybe you're a Christian, but you've not been living like it. Just come back to the cross. God's still looking for you. He's still waiting on you. The blood of Jesus is still continually cleansing you from every sin. That relationship hasn't gone away. Maybe the fellowship's not there, but you can be reconciled, restored in that fellowship through the cross of Jesus Christ. I think we all need to be reminded of this access that we have to the Father and not take it for granted and daily live lives where we're worshiping and praying and coming into the presence of God and letting Him work in us and letting Him change us from the inside out. And then, as individual believers and as a church, we need to believe that we are united in the cross of Christ and live like it. Love each other, serve each other, sacrifice for each other. Show the world what it really means to be people of the cross. That's when God's going to use us. That's when we're going to make impact in communities. That's when this nation's going to change. It's got to start with the church. I mean, if separation comes from sin, if the cross is the answer 
for sin, if we've experienced that answer and have that answer and are called to share that answer, we've got to model that truth. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.